You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me in them to the book of Acts, and we'll be looking together at chapter 16. Chapter 16 of the book of Acts, and you'll find this on page 925 of the Pew Bible. We're reading together verses 16 through 24. Acts 16, verses 16 through 24. Hear the word of God. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet, their feet in the stocks. Well, in this particular chapter of the book of Acts, the lives of three people in Philippi were changed by the gospel. First was Lydia, of course, that we've considered. She was a successful businesswoman whose heart was opened by God. The second is a demon-possessed slave girl who, as we'll find, was dramatically transformed. And the third is the Philippian jailer whom we'll hope to consider next time. Now, these three individuals, I think, are singled out for our instruction and edification. No doubt there were other converts in Philippi, but Luke selected these three. And what's interesting is they differed greatly from one another, as you can see. They lived under very dissimilar circumstances. You have a wealthy businesswoman on the one hand, you have a possessed slave girl on the other, and a run-of-the-mill jailer to round it out. But wonderfully, that which unites them all was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps Luke chose such a diverse representation to show us the power of Jesus. Any sinner, in any situation, guilty of any sin, can be saved by the blood of Christ. 
And that's why I think Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The fact of the matter is, there is no sinner on earth beyond redeeming grace. No one. If only he or she will receive and rest upon Christ, he or she will be delivered from wrath. And yet the Bible teaches that no one in the world can do that on his, on his own power. It's a conundrum. The natural person, Paul says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So the sinner does not, will not, cannot embrace Christ offered in the gospel. Can happen. The light shines, but he hates the light and he loves the darkness. And apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit, that sinner will always flee from the light. That's why you and I, as Christians, are going to be to some a fragrance of death to death. Damnation. Horrible doctrine. But true. And there is nothing that you or I can do about that. We're powerless because only God can change the heart and only God can enlighten the mind and only God can renew the will. And so in this chapter, thankfully, we find him doing that very thing. He saves sinners. He changes their hearts. And nothing can thwart the efficacy of Christ's blood when the Holy Spirit applies it to the heart. So Luke seems to imply here that the missionaries were attending a prayer meeting more than once in Philippi. And on one occasion, the men ran into a demon-possessed slave girl. He says she had a spirit of divination. Literally, what it says was she had a python, a serpent. That's the word. It originally referred to the snake which guarded the oracle at Delphi, the python. And it came to be used of fortune tellers, so we might even call this slave girl a pythoness, a serpentess. Her handlers exploited her for themselves because she had become very profitable to them. And she was their cash cow, so to speak. On this girl depended all of their livelihood. And I think it's hard for you and I to appreciate just how highly esteemed and valued this girl was in that society. You see, the ancient Greeks depended heavily upon the work of fortune tellers. No Roman commander, no Greek commander would ever embark on a campaign without first consulting a fortune teller. The emperor himself never made an important decree without first consulting a fortune teller. So those who claim to possess the knowledge of the future could be very profitable. This girl's demonic utterances were regarded as the voice of a god, and she was in high demand, and people wanted to hear what she had to say. They wanted to hear from the dead. They wanted to anticipate the future, and they wanted to gain personal advice for their own lives. 
And through this girl, Satan's influence had deceived multitudes of people. I think this shows on the very surface that spirits, evil spirits, are powerful beings with access to knowledge that is denied to you and I. It's the kind of information that can often gratify man's superstitious curiosity. Evil spirits are not omniscient. They don't know all things. They're creatures, after all. But they are privy to information that is beyond human capabilities. And that's why with lies, they can easily delude the ignorant and the gullible. Just look at the number of psychics and mediums and occultists that are flooding our culture. They're everywhere today. All kinds of people from every walk of life are foolishly consulting with them. And American society has become biblically ignorant and dangerously superstitious. Occultists are able to use such phraseology and give just enough detail to deceive the unwary. The light of the gospel shines, but folks love the darkness rather than the light. Many are ignorant of truth, and they're superstitious in belief, and they're idolatrous in their practices. You see it, and I do too. It's becoming mainstream. Their ears are tickled by reports of ghosts and messages from the dead and psychic oracles. And the Bible clearly shows that such forces of evil and powers of darkness are real. They're not just imaginary. So let's not obsess over them, but by all means, let's not underestimate them. We dismiss them to our own peril. One writer has said, a materialist is one who does not believe in demons and has no interest in what they do. That's the materialist. A sorcerer is one who believes too much in demons and has an unhealthy interest in them. Demons themselves don't care which one you are because both are equally in error and leave you open to their efforts. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he tells us, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done, having done all, to stand firm. The demon who possessed the slave girl was evil, and she was deceptive. And humility demands that we acknowledge our weakness against such foes. We can be thankful that a mighty fortress is our God, but as Luther tells us, did we on our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he. You see, good and evil are at war. Heaven and hell are in conflict. The outcome is not in doubt. The victory belongs to the Lord. In death, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil and he ascended in triumph to heaven 
and yet devils remain shrewd, subtle, secretive, and for now, seemingly successful. I don't know why the Lord does that, but he does. Their cause is lost, their efforts are futile, Christ has prevailed, and their time is short, but during this present evil age, they're allowed to deceive multitudes. And the majority of people who are duped suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They refuse to seek wisdom and guidance in Scripture because it's far too plain, so ordinary. And if they have any interest in guidance at all, they go in search of something more exciting. You remember when King Saul was denied a word from God, he consulted with the witch at Endor. He was frightened and he wanted something, anything to bring comfort to him in a time of trial. But in consulting with the medium for the dead, he made a very foolish mistake and God eventually judged him, removed him from the throne and took away his life. Evil spirits have great power. They're very skilled in the schemes of deceit. And we must not give them a toehold. We must shun everything associated with the occult. We stay away from things, at least when I was growing up, these things tended to be popular, like Ouija boards and tarot cards and palm readings and things of that nature. They may seem harmless, but they open the door to the occult. Devils can exploit the thinnest crack to their advantage. Our own Ward Heine has produced a very fine documentary on the occult and demonic that chronicles a real-life deliverance of a girl in West Virginia. It's real. And God exhorts us to be people of his word because that's where we find the truth. To the teaching and to the testimony, says Isaiah, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. And so regardless of how it seems or how it feels, if it contradicts the Bible, it's darkness. So this girl's fortune telling was in high demand and extremely profitable, and she began following the missionaries and for many days was very annoying. Crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And how ironic is that? Even the devils testified to the truth of Christ in his church. These men are servants of the Most High God. She bore witness to the apostolic teaching as the way of salvation. It's the truth. Matthew Henry's right when he says the truth is sometimes magnified by the confession of its adversaries. That's what's happening here. Remember when the demoniac said in Mark 1, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. God can so overrule the darkness as to glorify his own majestic name. And you can imagine how exasperating it would be for this to go on for days. The girl's behavior was anything but pleasant. Paul was not a very patient man, I don't think. I think he grew in patience over time. But her outbursts were bothersome. And you might say to me, well, wait a minute. Why would Paul be irritated? Why would this be so annoying? 
I mean, she was telling the truth after all. And why not welcome this kind of promotion? Paul, she's a ready-made herald on the streets of Philippi. You don't even have to pay for her. And given her own public standing, wouldn't she be giving free publicity? But you see, any association with a notorious medium would not be helpful to the cause of the gospel. Having a witch as a herald would not make things clear. It would confuse people. How could they discern between the demonic and the heavenly? And what's more, we cannot assume that the girl's utterances were respectful. You and I look on paper, it may sound good, but in person, it was probably contemptuous. With a scornful tone, she mocked them as servants of the Most High God. For example, you and I may esteem the Puritans, but did you know that that title was a designation of scorn? Her cries were probably like those which were heard from Christ's persecutors. This is what they said. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. On paper, Hail, King of the Jews. That's true. In person, it's ridicule. It was not the content, I believe. It was the tone that made the testimony so wicked. And her repeated public declarations annoyed Paul until he had had enough. He turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And it was an easy fix. Paul had no problem driving out this evil spirit. One command in the name of Jesus was enough to exercise a demon. Because the spirit of Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the most violent devil. And just as evil spirits obeyed Jesus during his ministry, so they obeyed the apostles. And Paul prevailed here by the power of Christ that was working through him. And notice there is no indication here of any argument. No appeal. No hesitation. It came out. The words scarcely left his lips when the girl was delivered from Satan's grip. Demons are not weak by human standards, but they're no match for Jesus. John says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. No qualification. The devils know it. <laughs> they acknowledge it as much. They acknowledge many truths of scripture. They affirm that God is God and that Jesus is the Son and that he is the way of salvation. They recognize that Christ will come at the last day to judge them. They know it. When the demoniacs came out of the tombs and met Jesus, this is what they said. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time, before the final day? They know it's coming. Because at the last judgment, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord. You see, the devils believe that there is a God. They believe that there is a Christ who died for sinners. And James tells us the, de the demons believe and they shudder. 
Their faith excites terror. And how foolish is the atheist? Even devils believe in the existence of God. And it shows that it's not enough to rest in devil faith. It's not enough to recite the Apostles' Creed. Do it. That's a good thing, but that's not enough. The powers of darkness can recite that creed. They have faith, but they have no love for Christ. And that's the one difference between a disciple and a devil. The disciple loves Christ. He receives and he rests upon him. He embraces the truth about him. He'll even sacrifice his life for him if necessary. And there should be evidence in a life that he is a sincere believer because James tells us, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. The true disciple esteems the name of Jesus above all other names. Why then, let me ask you, why then do frail human beings neglect or mistreat the majestic name of Jesus Christ? You hear it, and so do I. I think one explanation probably is the natural blindness with which we are all afflicted by birth. Most people have no idea who Jesus is or the authority that he's been given. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and yet how many take his name in vain? They profane the blood of the covenant. The devils themselves show respect for his infinite power. And every time I hear someone utter the name Jesus Christ as a curse, I cringe, as you do too, because you know it's the name above every name. The third command requires that his name be treated with the utmost respect. And we're told by our forefathers that he will be so far from acquitting and sparing the transgressors of this commandment, third commandment, he will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. By this exorcism, the demon-possessed girl was freed from the devil's grip. That's important to know because we're by nature children of wrath and bond slaves to Satan. She had been in bondage to Satan, but her power over her was broken. And in the name and by the power of Jesus, the demon had been cast out. That's the only way that anybody can be freed from satanic dominion. You know, scientists and sociologists, they've figured out ways to modify a person's behavior. They can do that. The kleptomaniac can be taught to resist the overwhelming urge to put something in his pocket from from the store. He can be trained. The foul-mouthed man can be counseled on how to govern his tongue, its behavior modification. But there is no power on earth that can deliver from sin and Satan. That's why we're taught to pray. Deliver us from evil. Only God can do it. 
He must overrule the world and subdue the flesh and restrain Satan. He must bestow and bless the means of grace, strengthen us in the use of them. And there is no other way because satanic dominion is far too powerful for us. Thank God then that the Redeemer is in heaven to intercede for us. Simon, Simon, said Jesus, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The only reason Simon ever believed in Jesus was because he prayed for him. In Christ, by Christ, this girl was delivered. What a blessing was the slave girl's deliverance. Her handlers were furious, no longer profitable. Her owners made their living off of her. And so the gospel ruined their business. Their stream of revenue dried up and Paul had hit them where it hurt most. A blow to the wallet. But rather than turning to God, they turned against Paul and seized and indicted him. And before the authorities, they made their charges and they were stripped, beaten, thrown into a dungeon with their hands and feet in the stocks. That's where it's left. But let's apply this briefly. First, I think we should rejoice in the power of the gospel to deliver from spiritual bondage. That's on the very surface of it. We are by nature in bondage to sin and Satan. These marvelous children that God gives us, little babies, innocent, seemingly, they're vipers. They're sinners. And by nature, they're in bondage to Satan. And thank God he's made a promise that through the means of grace and the exposure to the gospel and the example of godly people and the counsel of elders and the loving nurture of their parents, they'll be delivered through Christ. But every human being is born into bondage. Paul says to Timothy, God may perhaps grant unbelievers repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's the description of every unconverted soul. The devil's kingdom is black and dismal, wicked and miserable, and it's where death reigns and neither a gleam of light nor a spark of life is ever witnessed in the devil's kingdom. Never did the Egyptians treat the Israelites as bad as Satan treats his captives. No one escapes the devil's kingdom apart from the Spirit's power. And so we rejoice today in the work of Christ and the power of his Spirit who is able to deliver his people. But then secondly, let's rely upon Jesus Christ, the King and Head of the Church, for our salvation You and I both know that sinners are by nature debtors to justice and slaves to the devil. We just got done saying that. Our guilt as fallen creatures means that we owe a debt to justice. The wages of sin is death. That's our debt. He is the Lord, it says, and he will by no means clear the guilty. So we have our debt and we have our depravity as sinners, which means that we are by nature in league with the devil. 
So Jesus is sent on this mission to pay the debt in full and to destroy the works of the devil. And at that cross, at the cross, he laid down his life, we're taught, as a ransom for the souls of many. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over the forces of evil and the powers of darkness. So we as Christians believe that by his blood, Christ satisfies the law, and by his power, he overcomes the devil, and hence he proclaims liberty to the captives. Jason preached a sermon recently on the Old Testament Levitical feast called Jubilee. I don't know if you were here in the evening, but it was a good sermon. And he told us that every 50th year it was proclaimed by trumpet on the Day of Atonement, and it signaled the release of every Jewish slave, regardless of circumstances. The 50th year comes, you're all free. That's Jubilee. It was a time of great joy and gladness and thanksgiving, and the prisoners are free to go. We are living in the age of Jubilee. It's the age of the Lord's favor. The gospel of Christ is the proclamation of Jubilee when the prisoners are set free. The devil has no power to keep you. He may assault you, but he can't destroy you. He has no dominion over anyone who has joined Christ by faith. And yet some believers fail to appreciate this and they find themselves hindered by the devil's lies. I'm going to close with this. He incited David to number Israel, and he prompted Peter to tempt Jesus. And how often do Christians permit themselves to be needlessly held back? You're in bondage to the expectations of others. You're in bondage to the insecurities within. You perhaps are in bondage to fears or memories or shame. Sometimes it's pride or doubt, loneliness, discontent, lust, anger, critical judgment. You just can't help criticizing. And you ask, where is the freedom? Where is the joy? Aren't we living in the age of jubilee, Pastor? Well, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'm not talking here about mere orthodoxy. The Pharisees were orthodox. Their hearts were hard and they were in bondage. They knew the doctrines, but they didn't know the Lord. So the advice is to abide in his word, know him, worship him, engage in prayer to him. And if we devote ourselves daily to Christ, his spirit by the word will set us free. And by his power and in his name and under his authority, we can enjoy the Jubilee. May that be true of everyone here today. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize that there is a great conflict going on between good and evil. Not only in the visible world, but especially in the invisible realm. And so we're thankful for the Lord Jesus who reigns supreme, our great King and Lord. We're thankful for his spirit. And we pray that you'll help us to abide in his word, to put on the whole armor of God, and to be protected by our great King. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.